Today's episode is the concluding episode of Rotten Tomatoes. If you have not listened to part one yet, we encourage you to do so before you listen to this episode. Rotten Tomatoes would detail how a career con man stole over $2 million in less than six months from Alabama investors. He fooled people into investing in his tomato business, but the deal was not real. We talked to the prosecutor, investigator, and agricultural journalist that covered the case in great detail. So I've got a two-part question. How long did Cypress Farms actually last, and why did he think that his business was closing? Who did he blame it on? Well, he he actually operated from approximately April of 2013 to the end of September 2013 at Cypress Creek Organic Farms. So only five months? Correct. All right, Chris. Nick, think of the devastation. You, you, I mean, if you told if you told a scriptwriter that they'd say, "Look, we're gonna have to stretch this out further than five months. We need five, ten years to build this thing up." So he's not, you know, he's not burning a a a long wick there. He's using a flamethrower. If that's five, six months, and there's a lot of gray on the ends there, uh, that's 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 phenomenal. When the heat got too bad. And he jumped later on, right? Later on, he throws, he, he flings, uh, he flings Dookie on the wall at absolutely everyone, right? I mean, he throws it on the wall and who it hits, so be it. He blames other con men. He blames people like uh, Charles and Amanda. He blames the growers themselves, everyone but uh, himself. So, so this guy is this guy is singular. There's not many people like him. Fortunately, four million years. Chris, you you mentioned a kind of a laundry list of of wild, fraudulent sounding businesses that that this gentleman was involved in. Longhorn was involved in, and I I think we'll probably get into those a little bit later. But he and then someone mentioned um, his stay at prison. Was he assuming aliases? How was he avoiding kind of his the trail of his history? Because it seems like he's jumping from thing to thing where the, it's so hot still that it, a Google might have of his name might turn him off. Yeah, Liz, he doesn't advertise that initially. And he does use different names in different locations. But one of the just astounding parts to the Alabama tomato case is that he comes clean and sense to the growers actually comes clean and admits that he's been in federal prison in an open meeting and essentially says, Hey, I've, I've gone through the road to Damascus. I've had come to Jesus moment. And therefore, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> who are you to say like that? Who are you to judge me? I'm through with that. So that part is astounding. Even though he was using the aliases, he told people, right. I've been to the pen, I've been to the slammer, and that's all behind me. And, and I have no doubt with human psychology, there had to have been growers that listened to that and thought, hey, I'm glad to hear that because this man is repentant and therefore my money is truly safe. Whew. 
So now I'm going to ask one of my favorite questions and it's one of my favorite kind of things to get into with the work that I do up here too is, is what was his reaction when he learned that he was the subject of a securities fraud investigation? I, Chris said, you know, he was repentant in this case. Uh, he made the confessions that he made. He knew the gig was up. Uh, we had him under indictment for 24 counts. When he was taken into custody the first time, um, you know, the deputies just said, you know, he said, hey, you, you got me, um, that type thing. Sort of nonchalant about it. And in court, he um, was pretty low-key, but pretty cavalier. And we say some of these folks have sociopathic tendencies, and he's certainly one of them. So, um, you know, it, it was kind of still smug about it. Where was he when he was actually arrested? The first time. The first time. Charles, you know where they picked him up on the. He was in South Carolina. He was arrested uh, for uh, driving under the influence in an open container. So he was pulled over yeah. um, and then they saw the warrants for Alabama. Uh, officers saw the warrants, took him into custody, transported him to Madison County, Alabama. Um, and at that time, the defendant's entitled to a bond hearing. And so, um, excuse me, we had uh, recommended a bond initially after grand jury, and it was uh, $600,000 based on the bail schedule in the state of Alabama. Um, and so $600,000 initially, shortly after he was appointed an attorney, and the attorney moved to reduce the bond. So we had a bond hearing, and the judge agreed to reduce it to a... Hey, uh, $100,000 bond with the condition, you know, state asked for ankle monitoring. You, you mentioned he was picked up in South Carolina. That did he flee after he found out he was the subject of the securities fraud investigation? Yeah, Amanda, when they, when the worm scams fell apart. In Carolina, by this point, I think he had roughly 100 plus growers involved in that, which I think the pay-in for the worms was 5000 apiece to buy your worms and casting in perpetuity. That's when he hid, right? He had learned his lesson from Alabama. He was hiding in an apartment there in Carolina, pulling the levers on the worm operation from the apartment that he was using at that point, multiple aliases. I think the, it was Jim Gilly at that point. Yeah. I think Gilly or, or he, one of them was Roger Clemens. It may have been Roger Clemens. I can't remember. But uh, anyhow, when that when that tower got to the point where he had to roll, that business shuttered and he then went on, not a land from the law, but that's when he was caught in South Carolina. So the amount of money that he would have taken in in Carolina, I think was less than a million, something like 500,000. But that's the rough trajectory right there of, of where he was at. Thank you. Yeah. So he literally just closed up shop in the Huntsville area and went to the Carolinas and started all over there seamlessly, so to speak. Right, right Nick, which, which you, you, you know, it, it appears to be seamlessly. And therefore, he had to have been juiced in with a lot of people. So when he ran out of Alabama, essentially packed his bags overnight and was gone, he shows up in North Carolina and starts this 
wine business. They have an actual physical building. People come in, they buy the buy. Uh, they are provided with worms. They are provided with equipment. The word perpetuity again will buy your worms forever. He starts the whole thing again. He he's only there according to the witnesses for a very short time. Then he disappears in the apartment, and he has other people running the business for him. Anyhow, the the, the worm thing then collapsed quite quickly because worms uh, they grow both by math and by size and so the, the 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 numbers are insane and so when he took off from there that's when uh, y'all had him by the neck after the second one after he leaves carolina that's right we couldn't get our um you know it takes some time to conduct a white collar investigation but we did expedite this one thanks to our top gun over here charles trawick um, we put it together, you know, pretty quickly in a white collar world. And so, but we couldn't get that indictment out there fast enough before another scheme was already perpetrated and concluded. <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, you, you can't make it up, Amanda, because when he runs from Carolina and he shows up in Florida, right? Again, you're talking in a tiny amount of space. He had a building, he got a building rented in Florida. He had uh, flyers put out. He had growers that I'm told were already contracted with him. He had employees in Florida, just outside Orlando. Uh, he had the entire process in the works. And at this point, right, in Carolina, he hides in the apartment. In Bama, he shows his face. In Florida, he's showing his face again. So that shows a very brazen person who firmly believes he's going to get away with it. So what kind of business was he running in Florida? It was pickles, Nick. It was pickles. I think gotcha. you sell your cucumbers. You sell him your cucumbers, right? He's going to process them into pickles. And once again, buy them forever. I, I think the buy-in was pretty cheap. It's interesting because his buy-in from Bama to Carolina to Florida continues to drop. I think it was less than 5,000 and you could be a Poco pick. There were three or four names to the business. And what's really fascinating is that when the uh, uh, bounty hunters went down and collected his rear end in the room, in the motel where he was at, where they got him, was a bunch of computer equipment, camera, so on, and two boxes of business cards that sat on there uh, Poco Pickles, man, call this number and it'll all be gravy. Yeah, but what's even more fascinating, more fascinating than all that is that he did this while under indictment, jumped on, tore off his ankle monitor, and he's down in Florida starting his new business, got his business cards out, ready to roll. Right, right. That's, an That's actually where I was going to. Don't think of the confidence if you were going to pull that, Amanda, Charles, Nick, if you were going to pull that, think of the confidence you would have to have in yourself to be that brazen. That 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 says something. So the state recommended uh, a $600,000 bond. It was later reduced to $100,000 on the condition that an ankle monitor be placed on Jamie Longhorn. Um, and so, you know, we had GPS tracking on him and he had to report 
to the probation office or parole office weekly. And so he was under close supervision and ankle monitoring. Within a month of reducing that bond, the state received a notice that of uh, ankle monitor tampering. And we learned later that he had removed his ankle monitor. So how did he end up back in Alabama? I got a video uh, one night, a text message video one night from Bill and the gang of him picking him up in Florida in, this uh, in the motel room. Yeah, he texted me a video. I don't remember, this time was late one night and um, they had him in custody. They transported him back to Madison County where he sat uh, until trial under no zero bond. So he was held without bond. And Chris, you may have details there from the, the um, chase. Chris, so, not to interrupt, but who's who's Bill? You said Bill and the gang. Bill Hania is the bail bondsman that um, okay. that granted Lawhorn bond. Um, but is he with Dog the Bounty Hunter? No, they're all associated. I think Chris tracked them down, but there are several notable bail bondsmen's uh, prominent, I should say, bail bondsmen's, and they have a network, and so. Uh, I think Honey had contacted Dog, and they did some work before that Chris Chris learned about that. Correct, Amanda. I don't know if he still does, but Dog the Bounty Hunter's son, Leland, was at one point working with Bill Honey there in Alabama. I don't know if he still does. But uh, when Lawhorn sprang, Honey reached out to his contacts, and, and, and Honey used Dog the Bounty Hunter out in the West because the assumption initially was that Lawhorn would flee as far away as possible, show up in, in Vegas or something like that. And so Dog the Bounty Hunter shook the trees out in the west for him, and then Honia was looking for him in the southeast. I, I think Honia told me that he ended up with three, I think he said there was 3,000 tips that eventually came in regarding Lawhorn. Uh, incredible number. Yeah, I mean, he's he's audacious and he, he doesn't hide behind his fraud. So it didn't take him long to get Lawhorn into custody. When Honia goes to catch a Lawhorn down in Florida, and this is the video that Amanda referenced, when he goes to catch him down there and brings him back to uh, Alabama, it eventually ends up being, you know, if you count all your bathroom cigarette breaks, it eventually ends up being 10, 12 hours of a drive. That, that drive is where Lawhorn opens his mouth, according to Honia, for the entire trip because uh, Lawhorn sits in the passenger seat, uh, bolted in, so to speak, secure in. There's a guy in the back seat, right, to watch Lawhorn, and then Honia is driving. And Honia said, look, I've, I've been associated with all sorts of characters in crime. I thought I knew who was in the passenger seat beside me. But when he talked for 12 hours straight, Honia said he actually developed a streak of fear because he realized there was far, far, far more to uh, Lawhorn than he had suspected. And, and, and Lawhorn told him, he told Honey, look, I have just made a pocket of cash off these pickles. I have the money. 
if you let me out here on the side of the road, I'll give you the money, right? I'll give you a lot of money. Just let me go and we'll, we'll call it. And there was a whole lot, of course, more going on beside that. But we began to, in a boastful manner, right, expanding his chest, he began to go into detail on the expanse, the footprint of his crimes to Honia. And that's when it, it, he started going into, hey, I, I had forged the Secretary of Treasury's signature on the check, bought uh, bought a, some kind of yacht-sized boat with it. I've, I've been schooled to the nth degree in Leavenworth by a series of famous criminals. And uh, Honey is not the kind of guy, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, blow smoke regarding his own fear. And when he says, hey, I had suddenly had a respect for I had a tiger by the tail, the guy beside me. I entirely believe Honey uh, regarding what he uncovered. He did not know who was he, who he was bringing back initially from Orlando, Florida. But at some point during the trip, he realized this is not Tom, Dick, and Harry. This is somebody else. So uh, was there a trial? No, uh, Lawhorn did not go to trial two weeks prior to the trial setting. His lawyer contacted me um, and said, you know, Lawhorn, we, the state of Alabama had made an offer um, to plead him guilty because it's typical in a criminal case, you know, it's something that you do, you should do for many reasons, but um, so the offer that was made was for Lawhorn to plead guilty to two counts of securities fraud and to serve a 15 year sentence of a period of incarceration for two uh, concurrent. So they'll run together. So a total of 15 years incarcerated. We thought that was appropriate given the number of victims and the amount of money stolen. Um, so he ultimately accepted that offer after the state had uh, prepared this case for trial that typically happens as you get closer to trial that you'll have a defendant come forward and plead and I think he'd pled guilty in previous cases so um, you know we were a little surprised that he didn't come forth sooner but um, you know after we had our witness list we provided the financials to his attorney um, you know and all discovery and motions had been taken up he came forward. Did he, did Lawhorn show any remorse? None. Did the victims recover any of their losses? Um, so pursuant to the plea agreement, restitution was ordered to pay and the state had seized all of the assets that it could seize under, under state law. And so we were able to recover some funds um, that were illicitly gained. And we set all that money aside. We handled that on a civil through a civil matter. But he was also he was ordered to pay two point one million dollars. Some of that we collected, you know, from various accounts and things he had. And um, so did the victims recover? No, he was incarcerated immediately upon sentencing and um, has served some time. I won't get into sentencing and you know some of the issues that all states are experiencing with holding inmates right now but he did not serve the full 15 years he was released from incarceration um there's various calculations that go into that but we the state of alabama is in the process of hauling him back into court um 
to face that restitution order. No, he didn't have any money. I mean, we took all, all the cash and assets that he had at the time, but it was it's nowhere near the $2.1 million that he was ordered to pay. Just briefly, how do you feel that this impacted his victims? On every victim of um, a crime, you know, and this is just what we see in a crime involving theft and fraud, you know, people, they become distrustful. Um, and it's hard. You don't want to live life not trusting folks. Disappointed. Um, some of them were struggling to invest in the first place, so financially devastated afterwards, especially those that had purchased greenhouses through a loan uh, mm -hmm. that they took out. And y'all, $10,000 is a lot of money in Alabama. You know, it's a lot of money to right. me. And to have multiple loans outstanding, you know, so financially devastated, um, embarrassed, shamed. And, you know, you live the rest of your life like that with those emotions that were are created because of this fraudster. And Chris, you talked to some of the victims as well. I mean, they shared Man, stories with you. I agree wholeheartedly with everything you just said. He, uh, you know, you look at the roster of victims and sure, you could say, well, $10,000 is not going to impact someone in the long term. Uh, I, I, yes, it, yes, it, you know, for many of those people, right, you financially wrecked them and uh, he stole their trust. I, I, I want to use the word again, predator. It's a predatory behavior. And, you know, there's a comical element to this story. You tell someone this, their jaw drops, and they, they, they can't help but look at the ludicrous nature of the whole thing. Yes, that is absolutely part and parcel of this. But underneath it all are people just average good people maybe like your, your aunt your mama good people that could not afford to lose a dime and they did um, they are shattered they'll never be the same that could have been someone's tiny retirement egg and uh one of the saddest parts of it all is that according to the victims according to many people i've spoken to their estimate is that he is already involved in some sort of haul illicit and he always will be there were a couple of people i talked to and this this resonated with me they said he had tried to pull them into uh, uh hemp farming and hemp as y'all know right now is is not uh anchored in the united states it's a wild west market it it, it the, the, the the rules are yet to be and there have already been many scams in the hemp it's prime or scams. And so when they said that he tried to get them involved in him, well, that caught my ear because it made sense if he's involved or gets involved in some sort of, of hemp scandal in the future, I, I could not be surprised at all. And Chris, this is where our worlds caught again because our listeners, um, you know, cannabis type investments have been something on our agendas or, you know, conferences and things for the last couple of years. So um, our states are looking at, at cannabis and hemp operations. Um, so you guys beware for uh, Jamie Longhorn. We'll have a, a photograph of him, uh, hopefully linked with the podcast. Right, right. You can Google his name. Mm. Right. 
And Chris and Amanda, you guys just brought us back to kind of the reason we're here and the impact on the victims, because these stories can get so wild. And I think, you know, it's really important to to stress how harmful these these people are. These these swindlers can be to individuals. I mean, you're talking, like you said, loans, life savings taken out on a promise. So in order to maybe help someone in the future avoid this happening to them, what were the red flags? Well, Chris, you mentioned some earlier, but it depends on who you are in this case, just from my perspective as a prosecutor and uh, state securities regulator, because typically we see the outrageous returns, um, you know, the, the representations made in connection with the investment, um, you know, the, the business entities associated. But in this case, unless you were, in my opinion, you know, a farmer in the, in the ag industry, it would be tough to to recognize red flags. And uh, Chris, I know you named a few um, from your perspective, though. What would you say were the red flags? You know, you know, I could throw out the boilerplate, Amanda, and say, if it sounds too good to be true, you know, we could throw out that line. I, I won't because that's that's not good enough. I, I tell you what, Amanda, if, if, if someone's approached, regarding anything that requires investment. In other words, if, if I ask you for $1,000 or 10,000, what have you, and I promise something in return, I, you know, I, I'd urge people to recall, especially in this day and age, because you have an option. If you don't have internet access and so on, you're not adept at maneuvering on the internet, the, the, the key here is you can find someone who is. So whether or not you can go look into someone, find out if they're using an alias, granted, maybe you can't. But if you keep your powder dry, for any listener, keep your powder dry, you can find someone who can find something out. Because Lawhorn, I, I, I assume here, again, it's an assumption, I assume the next scam will be him behind the curtain. I don't think it'll be his uh, mug out there for people to see. I think he'll be pulling strings, marionette puppet style on something. And whether it's hemp or a survival bunker like he pulled in Kentucky, uh, it's going to nice, right? It, it, it looks good when you're approached, but the trap door will fall out. And my Lord, in his case, that trap door swings very fast, very fast. And Chris, you just, um, you know, you just teed up our collectively, our state as a state securities regulator, um, our goal, our mission, you know, our public awareness campaign daily is to that person that you that you should know and that you want to call is your local securities regulator because they can tell you whether this person, you know, is licensed, is registered to offer investments to sell securities. Um, and so there is a person out there in every state that can do that for you, exactly what you said. And that's what we're here for. So, yeah, you know, red flags, whether they're so glaringly obvious, or, you know, are subtle in this case, in my opinion, based on um, other schemes that we've seen. Uh, still, if it's an investment opportunity, like Chris said, and, and he's pitching it for us, is uh, to contact, you know, your securities regulator. Mm -hmm. So, um, with Charles, it's been a couple of years since this case. Uh, what made this case different from the other cases that you've investigated? 
uh, several different things. Uh, one of the big things was what we just finished talking about, the lack of red flags. They just weren't there. Um, and when I started trying to document the use of the funds, uh, I was surprised that it was so little. It was a uh, little less than $420,000. It's usually the majority of the funds that are misused. So that was unusual. In other words, some of the money was used to continue to perpetuate the fraud. Um, and a lot of it was pulled out in cash, but what we typically see, at least in Alabama is, you know, if a million dollars was taken in 990,000 of it was spent on, uh, cars, houses, you know, whatever. But, um, in this case, you know, Lawhorn had to keep the facade of the, of the business in order to continue to do what he's doing. Chris, what attracted you to this case? Well, I was writing Liz at the time. A story on Greg Bradley that I'd mentioned earlier, uh, the fellow in Oklahoma that's pulling the worm scam. And I believe I had uh, Googled one evening a detail related to that worm scam. And when I did, Longhorn's name came up. I simply bookmarked the page and saved it and then read it later on and realized that uh, I was looking at a uh, essentially a immorality play. Right, uh, it's, it's almost like you just grabbed a, a a bunch of characters from a carnival, with Lawhorn as the ringmaster, and tossed them, right, and, and to see how they land, and and my goodness, you, you talk about a a case that's extremely convoluted. Find me a story with as many moving parts as the Jamie Lawhorn case. And I'll pay attention. So, yes, it reached out and uh, hit me in the head because frankly, I've never read about anything like that before. So, Amanda, what makes a person like Jamie Lauren so dangerous to society? His being. I mean, we, like I said earlier, most people are good. Once in a while, you get a bad egg. You know, I don't know who Jamie Longhorn really is. Nobody does. Um, but the fact that in this case that he was willing to go to the extreme to convince people to trust him and to invest with him, the fact that he was so brazen, as Chris said, bold, you know, confident. He checked the box of the confidence artist, the con artist, and um, and he's willing to do anything. So what makes him in particular so dangerous is that it is his confidence um, and his brazen personality. Well, Amanda, Charles, and Chris, thank you so much for your time. I think that y'all have done a tremendous job explaining this complicated case today. So in closing, how can someone check the background of a person making the investment officer offer? Go to NASA.org, click Contact Us, and then click Contact NASA Member to choose your jurisdiction's regulator. Being an informed investor means having a plan and understanding each of your investments. Whether you're new to investing or already investing, 
NASA and its members provide a variety of online investor education resources for investors of all ages. Go to nasa.org for more information on how to be wise and a safe investor. Well, thank you all for joining us and for the work that you do to protect the investors. That is it for today. And from Montgomery, Alabama, I'm Nick Bondaroo. And from Hartford, Connecticut, I'm Liz Mullen. If you have any questions about today's episode or would like more information about the topis- topics discussed, you can email us at realliferegulators at gmail.com. And if you would like to hear future episodes, please hit the subscribe button. NASA provides its information as a service to investors. It's neither a legal interpretation nor an indication of a policy position by NASA or any of its members. If you have questions concerning the meaning or application of a particular state or provincial law, rule, or regulation, please consult an attorney that specializes in securities law.